Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, special episode this week. This is a live conversation between me and Sam Harris. Sam has had, I say this a lot about our guests, but it happens to be true. In this case especially, Sam has had a, a massive impact on, on on my life and my meditation practice. Sam, if you don't know him, he's he's a, got a long resume. He's a neuroscientist. He is an author of some best-selling books, including The End of Faith. He is a very prominent atheist. Atheism was at the core of, of the aforementioned End of Faith. He's a podcaster. He's got a, a podcast called Waking Up that is just now switching the name. He's actually changing the name of the podcast for a reason I'll explain in a second, to Making Sense, one of the most popular podcasts on the planet. So it was Waking Up, and now it's changing to Making Sense. He called it Waking Up because that was actually a name of, the name of another book he wrote, that meditation was at the center of that book, Waking Up. It's an amazing book. I recommend it highly and unreservedly to everybody. But he then went on to found a meditation app called waking up. So he decided to change the name of his podcast to Making Sense. And uh, he also now has this new app called Waking Up, which I'm a horrible friend. I haven't checked out yet, but I can guarantee you is excellent just because everything Sam does, in my opinion, happens to be excellent. Uh, but more about how I got to know Sam. So I met him, oh, I mean, probably well over a decade ago when I was covering the religion beat at ABC News. And as part of that, I did a big story about atheists and met Sam at a big conference of atheists and just really hit it off with him. I wouldn't call myself personally an atheist. I would say uh, I use the term respectful agnostic. And Sam is, is much, much more has a much more personally provocative style than I personally would adopt. But I just found him to be very interesting and uh, intriguing and over time just got to know him personally and, and we've become friends and friends with his wife, Annika, as well, who's been on this podcast before and, and will again be in the future because she is, uh, in her own right, a fascinating human being. So over time, uh, Sam and I became friends, and I, I got to learn that he was interested. And I talk about this in, in, in my first book, 10% Happier. Uh, when I found out that Sam, who is the ultimate skeptic, had a long history of meditation dating back to his college years and had done weeks and weeks and weeks and months of silent meditation retreat. I was at a sort of uh, tender moment in my meditation career was I was trying to figure out if, how seriously I was going to take this thing. And, and I saw Sam and, and I think it was the second or third time I ran into him. And he happened to mention to me that, that he had this long history of meditation. And I thought, okay, if this guy's into it, I can get into it. And he really encouraged me to do my first meditation retreat and introduced me to his friend, Joseph Goldstein, who's subsequently become my meditation teacher. And so just over the years, talking to Sam about meditation practice and how it shows up in his life and getting his advice on all sorts of things has been incredibly meaningful to me. So when the kind folks at the Skirball Cultural Center in Los Angeles invited us to do a conversation in front of a live audience, I leapt at the opportunity because any time we can spend, I can spend it with Sam is time well spent. So this conversation, we talk about what meditation is and what it isn't, 
We talk about the experience of being on a meditation retreat, something I know a lot of you are curious about. And we take a lot of questions from the audience. And for that reason, I am not going to do voicemails this week because we're effectively doing it within the body of the episode anyway. We'll resume our voicemails next week, but there's you'll get to hear people ask very interesting questions. And luckily for you, it won't just be me answering them. You'll, you'll be hearing Sam Harris as well. For those of you who want to hear more about Sam's personal history, he's been on the podcast before. You can go back and find that. But this one is much more topical about meditation and, and lots of related issues. So I really enjoyed uh, taping this and, and hanging out with Sam and Annika and my wife backstage beforehand. And uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think the first time we met was the American Atheist Convention, which I was covering as a journalist, and you were there as a card-carrying atheist. Yeah. And um, although that although you gave, that you got up at that event and actually gave a speech that you later described as the first time that you began with a standing ovation and ended with booze because yeah. Yeah. you you said to the atheist, first of all, I don't think we should be using the word atheist, and then you went on to say that that there are forms of spirituality that they had closed their mind to. I didn't hear the speech. I just met you outside in front of like all of these t-shirts uh, like that said like, Jesus, save us from your followers. And, um, <laughs> and I, just, I was uh, not wearing one of those t-shirts. That, that was, <laughs> that was I, I uh, met you and we hit it off. But it was a short encounter. And then I saw you backstage at this debate, and we really started talking, and I had just gotten into meditation. And the fact that you were into it, which I did not know, because, I, again, I hadn't heard the speech, was hugely validating because you struck me as, like, the prototypical skeptic. Right. And so that that really, when you told me you should go on a retreat, and Annika, um, who's also quite skeptical, said, hey, you should go on a retreat, I, I took it seriously. Mm. Plus, I was writing a book, and I need some <laughs> to write about, so... Uh, <laughs> Although, ironically, because I got into meditation so much earlier, I mean, I was, I think I was 19 when I started, and I had no, I had no real scientific training to speak of at that point, and I certainly had no persona as an atheist, and I, I was an atheist, but I didn't think of myself as an atheist. I didn't go into it with your level of skepticism. I mean, all the things that you're allergic to, that you, you talk about, the, the patchouli oil and the bad music... None of that was an impediment to me. So you're well, what's what's you amazing. You were cool with didgeridoo music and uh, yeah, I, I was. Cat I, I went to India and I walked around in pajamas for a, a long time. I mean, it was. I had. Uh, you were trying to for for one of those pieces you did. You were trying to pry photos of me with long hair out of my my reluctant fingers. You were I, I willing to it. give it to me, but Annika yeah, intervened. That's right. And, the only Probably reason why there's not hippie photos of me out on the net is because my wife wisely saved me at the 11th hour. So, I'll but yeah, so I was a teenager and I got into it. So, but you, one of the things that's so useful about your books is that you prove that there is a doorway into this concern and, the, and this practice that is narrow enough and, and brightly lit enough so as to, to not admit any bullshit. And, and that's, and you don't have to take on any cultural trappings and, and be fascinated with, with Eastern religion or, or anything to find this useful. I think it's, a, it's just an incredibly important thing to know. I often say that meditation has been the victim of the worst marketing campaign for anything ever. Mm. And because it's been presented to us in this very flowery, 
way and um and actually there are there are many levels to the bad marketing but in, just to address the level on which you're speaking is that it just comes with all this cultural baggage that for people like me is is just deeply off-putting and as i've written about the fact that i my parents were hippies and they made me go to a yoga class when i was little and the mm -hmm. teacher didn't like my tough skin pants and made me do sun salutations in my tidy whities and that created a lifelong <laughs> hostility to anything like that and so i really hated that stuff and so, so meditation just never even went came on my radar screen until i started seeing the science mm -hmm. and that there is and we have to be careful when we talk about the science because it's still in its early stages and some of the science is frankly just not of a high quality. But I think, I think what we can safely say is that it strongly suggests that meditation can confer a long list of tantalizing health benefits. And that, to me, was really what started to change my mind and meeting people like you. Well, that's interesting because it seems to me that there are two doorways into this, at least two, and they're not, they're not the same. And, and so the, the first that you've just described is the the usefulness of the practice and so the, and that extends now as we know to at least some medical claims that that seem fairly well founded but there, there's another door which is the door i took which is really the still what i emphasize in my thinking about this which is just is the door of, of what is true about the mind from the first person side so it, what is it actually like to be you if you pay attention and, and, and what you find if you're, if you're new to this practice and even for the longest time is that it's very hard to pay attention. Just getting to the place where you can notice anything is quite a feat and takes, takes training, but you can spend You can, you can go through that door and not necessarily care that much about the benefits. And I mean, I often think that I would still be interested in meditation, even if it were not good for you, you know, even if it were a little bad for you. I mean, there, there, there are people who get into sports, which are clearly not all that healthy, but they still love the sport. And this is a kind of intellectual sport in a way, which uh, I think you, you can become fascinated by, even if you're not sold that it's, that it reliably reduces stress or anything else that it seems to do. I, I agree. I mean, um, I, my intuition as a storyteller, but also as a practitioner, and now as what I sort of like semi-facetiously use the word um, evangelist for the practice, is that it's, I think, more widely attractive to talk about the benefits. That oh, yeah, is yeah. the bigger door. But I think you, many people quickly get to what you're talking about, which is getting an experience of what our minds and therefore our lives are actually about. Mm. And that becomes of, uh, I, for many of us, practitioners becomes extremely interesting. Mm. I also think, as it pertains to the science, that, look, I think as, as an endeavor, it's a very, it's a good field of interest. But it's, for me, as, a, as an evangelist, the science is useful as a way to get people interested who might not otherwise be interested, but it doesn't have much of a bearing on your actual practice. Like, as I like to say that, that you might start meditating because you see the brain scans, but you don't keep meditating because you think your prefrontal cortex would look different and different in, in an fMRI right now. You keep mm. meditating because you're less of an to yourself and others. And that yeah. is the metric that matters. Yeah, yeah. 
it occurs to me now, actually, I had to do And I think both do doors this, lead you to that, being less Yeah, although you can still be an I find, uh, <laughs> rather regular. Less, not, not you. Less yes. of an Our wives are both here, so yeah. if you want to flesh out this part yeah. of the discussion, get a mic to them. It occurs to me we might want to just sit for two or three minutes just so that everyone knows what we're talking about. I yeah. assume many people in this room have at least had some experience with meditation, but if not, let's just do it for two minutes so we are on the same page. So you might close your eyes. You don't have to close your eyes, but many people like to do it that way. And sit a little more erect, just comfortably. And bring your attention to the sounds in the room. Just let each sound, whether it's my voice or anything else, reveal this space of awareness that is knowing. And you also might feel your body resting in space. The feeling of gravity, of pressure on the chair, on the armrests. Just keep your attention wide open. And the moment you notice your thinking, just come back to hearing sounds and feeling the weight of your body. And then you might begin to pay attention to the breath, whether you feel it at the tip of the nose or in the rising and falling of your chest or abdomen. See if you can follow the next inhalation from the moment it appears. And so too with the exhalation. And again, the moment you notice your thinking, just come back to sensation. Whether it's the breath, or the feeling of just sitting, or the sounds. Now you can open your eyes and 
Notice this field of color and light and shadow that you see. This is actually the same place where you're hearing sounds and feeling sensations. This is also the open space of consciousness. There's really no place else for anything to appear but in consciousness. It's also that the place you see with your open eyes is the same place where you're thinking, too, because you can, you can broadcast a thought into this field of color and light. So just to test this, I want you all to picture the Eiffel Tower in front of you as a, as a statue. Make it about two feet high. Now, depending on how good you are at visualizing things, it may be a very evanescent image, may be barely an image, but it, it is something. It's not the same as picturing a bicycle. So that this is the place you see with your open eyes is also your mind. It's also consciousness. So meditation, and now, now I'm officially talking and not just guiding a meditation. <laughs> Medi- meditation is just the art of paying more careful attention to everything that's already happening, sights and sounds and sensations and changes in mood, and ultimately even thoughts can arise as objects of meditation and not distract you. But for the longest time when you're training in this, you're either lost in thought or you're aware of your senses, essentially. And thought, thought is, at least presents itself as a kind of antithesis to meditation because it, we are so distractible by it. But ultimately, it's not about getting rid of thought or thinking less. It's, it's actually just noticing everything that's arising as it arises, including thought. What has your experience... So, so now Dan's done many retreats where you, you just go into, you go into silence for a week or 10 days at a time and spend 12 to 18 hours a day, depending on how much you're sleeping, doing just what we were doing for the last few minutes. You can do it while walking, you can do it while sitting, and you alternate hour by hour. So what was that, what was that first retreat like that Annika and I goaded you into doing? <laughs> uh, it sucked. Um, <laughs> it was the first four days were some of the hardest days of my whole life. Mm-hmm where you're just surrounded by all these weirdos and... um, You're welcome. Yeah. Oh, I had things I I wanted to say to you. um, And the hardest part is not... People people often latch onto the silence part of it. Hmm. There was nobody there I wanted to chat with. And um, I actually, despite the fact that I'm a professional talker, I actually not a huge problem for me to be quiet. Um, so that wasn't the issue, nor was it really the other people there who actually weren't that weird. I'm, I'm just joking. I, although my, my mind was judging them all, all, all the time. Um, it was sitting and meditating 
or walking and medita- just meditating all day long was incredibly hard. You just really are thrown up against your own insanity. And I was ready to quit and went and sat with this teacher. Actually, the teacher I hated the most was the only one available. And uh, uh, you're allowed to talk to the teacher. So I was telling her this about how horrible it was. And she just said, you're trying too hard. And so I kind of the next meditation session, instead of sitting in the hall, the meditation hall with everybody else, I, I went and sat on the balcony outside of my, uh, on the hallway where I was staying. There was a balcony at the end of the hallway in, in this one building that I was staying in and had this kind of experience of effortless awareness of whatever was happening. So I was noticing the, rustle of the leaves, the wind, the pain in my knee, the fact that I was distracted and then starting again. And it was all just coming really fast and easy. And I wasn't trying as hard. And uh, I have described it as it was like those first four days on retreat where I, I was like I was being dragged by a motorboat by my head underwater. And it was horrible, as that would probably be. And then on that in that sit outside, it was like I got up on water skis hmm. and I could see what the point of this whole thing was, which is when the thinking, the volume of your inner conversation goes down significantly, there's an enormous amount of serotonin that accompanies that. And life is much more vivid. Hmm. And you understand how these unseen conversations you are having with yourself drive you nuts you're yeah. judging you're wanting your uh, and and that then leads you to you know eat when you're not hungry or as i sometimes do say say the thing that ruins the next 48 hours of your marriage mm. um and and th- this is just a very powerful insight um and really is actually available to anybody who sits and meditates even for two minutes that, that, that you're crazy, and when you don't see the craziness, when you're unaware of, of the aforementioned nonstop conversation, it owns you. And so yeah. that moment where the, the conversation, the, my inner conversation, that chatter had come way, way, the volume came way down, that was really interesting and led to about 36 hours of some of the purest happiness I've ever experienced. And then it went away, as all mm. things do. Um, but I, I came away from that retreat with, and this is a loaded phrase, uh, word rather, in your presence, Sam, but I came away from that retreat with a lot of faith mm. in the practice, confidence that this is not like, you know, the mental version of hacky sack, that, you know, just something that hippies do to pass the time, that this is real. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fine use of faith. I'm not allergic to the word. Uh, I mean, it's, it's confidence that you are not uniquely cursed yeah. and that, that this, this sort of inner landscape that has been well mapped by other people and, and described, you if, you, if you perform this experiment on yourself, you will have similar mm-hmm. results. Mm-hmm. It, does, I mean, it, it seems to take... So, so before you went on retreat, you, 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 you had been meditating... Did you retrospectively feel that you really had never been meditating before you did the retreat, or did you 
Because I, I had that experience where I, once I did a 10-day retreat, I realized that for the previous year, I had just been sitting cross-legged and thinking with my eyes closed. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I think I had, never ha- I had never broken through to anything other than, you know, boy, it feels good to sit here with beads on and think. <laughs> I want those pictures. <laughs> Look, I actually think that that's a... Again, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revert back to... Uh, I realize this is counter-programming to the message that... Yes. That one minute a day is adequate, yes. yes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get back on the program here yeah. because I actually think that there are, like any skill, any, any field of endeavor, there are levels to it. Yeah. And if you sit and try to meditate and notice that you've become distracted, and start again and again and again, that is meditation. It's meditation, and you are deriving a lot of benefit from that because every time you see how crazy you are, the craziness has less power over you. And that can happen for anybody at any time, anywhere. And so I, don't, I will not back away from that. I will, however, concede that for sure that you, once you put yourself in a container where everything about it is designed to support your meditation practice, you have no other responsibility. You're being fed, um, housed, uh, instructed, that you can reach levels that are, for, for me at least, unavailable mm. on the subway. So I've come full circle on this where I feel like the the thing that is most important to glimpse in the practice that many people only tend to find on, on you know, after intensive retreat is the thing that you can see on the subway. I mean, there actually is no, there, the connection to retreat disappears ultimately, and it need only last a moment to be extremely valuable. But let, so let's talk about the crazy but, side but, of it for a second. I want just to yeah. dig into that for a second yeah. because... There are the thing about meditation. One of the many things about meditation is so interesting to me is that you can you can emphasize different aspects. So I tend to emphasize the aspect of seeing how crazy you are, mm. because because I hear from people all the time who say I can't meditate because I, my mind's too busy. And so I, I, I I've made it my business to tell those people, no, no, you are meditating. The fact that you're noticing that your mind is busy is a success. What you're calling a failure is success. Yeah. Um, and here's why it's a success, because every time you see how distracted you are, you notice something about your mind, which is that you're crazy. And then, the cra- then when anger or distraction or whatever ambushes you later in the day, you have, a better, you have better odds of not being owned by it. Mm-hmm. You emphasize a different aspect, which I think is... I think is this is the thing you were about to say that you can see on the subway, which I agree with you, but it's harder for people to grasp, right? Because you sit the, you talk about, you write about this brilliantly in Waking Up, which I've read like maybe four times, but I think it's harder for people to understand what it is that you are emphasizing. So maybe make a run at that. I know you're okay, supposed to be asking yeah. me the questions, but. No, well, I, I realize I'm outgunned here. I'm sitting next to a professional journalist and. <laughs> This was bound to happen. How many minutes did I last? Well, let's talk about the crazy for a second, because crazy sounds like an exaggeration, but what you get when you have any significant experience in meditation is a very different picture of 
what a healthy mind must be like. And, and we, we have a, like the status quo is so close to psychotic that it's, I mean, it, it really, it, the, the difference for me is just the fact that most of us, most of the time, have the good sense to keep our mouths shut and not vocalize the things we're thinking. But just, just imagine if everyone could hear what you're thinking all the time, right? or, if, or if you helplessly said the words that you're actually thinking with the voice of your mind all day long, you would be indistinguishable from someone who was actually crazy. And it's just, you'll tell yourself the same story again and again and again. There's just, you have no capacity for boredom, apparently, inside your head. And, but if you were forced to, to, to exteriorize that, you would immediately be confronted with the, the evidence that you were stark, raving mad. And so that's what you get in from Buddhism as a, as a tradition, but really even from a secular, any kind of secular immersion in, in this practice is a different sense of what a healthy mind would be like. And, it, and it's not to be, it can't entail spending virtually every moment of your waking life identified with thought and unaware that you're essentially living in a kind of waking dreamscape where you're just if it's, a, if it's a depressing thought, you're depressed. If it's a happy thought, you're happy. If it's a fearful thought, you're afraid. And you're just being played and just subsumed in each moment by these images and these sentences that in many cases are totally superfluous. I mean, this is, this is a, an experience that I often have. I walk out on stage like this and I notice, you know, I tend to drink a lot of water at events like this. I, I notice there's water and, and, there'll be a, a voice in my head. It's my, it's, you know, I'm not schizophrenic, so it's actually my voice. It's not somebody else's voice. But it, you know, I'll think, oh, there's, good, there's water there. But who am I telling? Right? I, I can see the water. Right? You know, there's, there's, there's no one else that needs to be informed about this. So most of our... Th- it's not to say that we don't need thoughts for anything, but so much of our conversation with ourselves is deeply superfluous. I agree. And, uh, and from personal experience, uh, you know, there's a, there's a great writer. I don't know if you think he's great, but I think he's great. Stephen Batchelor, who writes yeah. books about Buddhism from the perspective of an atheist, although it's a little bit redundant because there's no God in Buddhism anyway. But yeah. um, he has said, and I'm probably not going to quote this exactly, but that if you look long enough into your own mind, you'll see a murderer and a rapist. Hmm. You will see the capacity we all have for all sorts of things, beautiful things, ugly things. And that's okay, actually. That is part of the process. The seeing of the craziness, how hilarious it is, how shameful it is, how scary it is. This is what we're doing. This is the business. This is at least the part of, this is the aspect that I at first, at least, emphasize, because I think it is so useful to see yeah. this stuff so that it doesn't own you. Yeah, and it's good to, to break the habit, which you, you emphasize in, in probably both books, but having just read your, your current one, you do it a lot there, which is this judgment that comes naturally to someone who's trying to learn to meditate, which is the moment you notice you're lost in thought, you've been distracted for five minutes or whatever while you're thought you were meditating, you've been uh, thinking about lunch or, or replaying some conversation in your head, 
And the moment you notice that, it's very common to have an additional moment of judgment about that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I was supposed to be meditating. I'm like, well, when am I going to learn to do this? And yet you skillfully reframe that as that's a moment it's of success. Win. I mean, that's, that's when it's actually working. Hashtag okay. winning, as Charlie yeah. Sheen says. Yeah, yeah. And I really do. I mean, that, that is a, an incredibly important uh, thing to know. And I think it is what allows people to, many people, to do this. Because so many of us believe the story we're telling ourselves about how we could never meditate. Because you don't understand my mind. I hear this all the time. My mind is so busy that I could never do this. I call it the fallacy of uniqueness. Mm. Because we think that we have this kind of sui, how do you pronounce it? Sui generis, you know, lunacy that only we have. But that is, that this is the human condition. We evolved on the savannas, you know, for threat detection and for finding sources of pleasure and for a racing mind. And this is, this is the, if, if we weren't all like this, we wouldn't need meditation. Now, now currently, so you, this is, was like 10 years ago? When, when did we first meet? We like, met and I believe the, the, the Jesus t-shirt thing was in like 2006. Right. And right. I think the. Thing, so when did you set your first retreat? I did in 2010, I think. Yeah, uh-huh. 2010. So I think I met you in 2009. Right. So, you know, you, so now this is a, a, it's actually part of your job now. I mean, now you have a, you've designed your life so that you are, you, you have to meditate. I mean, this is, this is a, this is a great family business. It's a great gig. Yeah. Yeah. Just want to put a pin in the fact that you evaded my question oh, about did. the aspect. Okay. Of, so you can get to okay. it at your own. No, I, I can be dragged back to that. So, what, so the question is, what is the aspect thing? that you, the thing you emphasize a different aspect here, which is the thing that you were saying before could, can be seen on the, on the subway, which I agree with, but it's a different thing or no thing at all. So this is really the truth door versus the useful door, or the, the utility door. There was no guarantee that seeing the character of your mind more clearly, which is to say more accurately, more truthfully, would be useful. We could live in a universe where it would destabilize you in some way, right? It it could be, and it may in fact be bad for some people. And I think there are probably people who, there's certainly people who shouldn't do intensive retreats. I think that's, you know, it it can exacerbate certain psychological conditions. Uh, I think there's a... Trauma. Yeah. uh, There's a... I didn't mean that as a joke. I yeah, meant like no, if you have trauma, true, yeah. that, that it is something you should talk to a, a professional beforehand. So, the, and there is a, a, a very small literature on people who feel like they have been harmed by doing intensive practice because they just were thrown in the deep end of the pool and didn't swim well. But that, I mean, that, those are certainly minority cases. But in, if you get a group of 200 people together, there's very likely going to be one person for whom it was a bad idea to do a, an intensive retreat. I guess it's conceivable that's true of a daily practice, but I, I, I think it's very unlikely that sitting in the middle of your life for 20 minutes and paying attention as we just did would be bad for anyone. But if, you know, if, I guess the, the disclaimer is valid. If you find that it seems like it's not doing anything good for you then, or doing something bad for you, then you should consult a psychotherapist who, who knows about these things, and, and many now do. I mean, my, mindfulness is has invaded the, the psychotherapeutic community, and it's, it's understood by many, many of them. But there it just is a fact that 
seeing certain features of consciousness more clearly seems to be very helpful psychologically in many ways. It doesn't help everything. I mean, you can still, at whatever level of, of stability you are in the practice, you're still going to spend most of your time lost in thought. And then you are hostage to whatever the character of your thoughts are. So if, you were, if you're an when you're thinking, well, then you're, you're probably still an most of the time. <laughs> but it's, po- it's possible to punctuate that with a very clear scene of some surprising facts about consciousness. And, and one is that consciousness itself just the, the sheer fact of knowing anything, you know, whether it's a visual perception or an internal appearance like a, like a thought, that condition of knowing in and of itself doesn't feel like a self. It doesn't feel like I. It doesn't feel like the subject that most people think is riding around in their heads, having the thoughts and the experiences and, and appropriating everything from this position of being a, a a subject in, inside the head. And it's possible to recognize that, and that is freeing in a, in a fairly radical way. I mean, all of the, the highfalutin language you get from the contemplative traditions, for the most part, is anchored to that kind of insight, that, that the, the ego is an illusion, or that the self is an illusion, or that duality, the subject-object perception, is an illusion. And it can be a very ordinary realization. It doesn't have to come with all the pyrotechnics of a kind of psychedelic experience. I mean, you don't have to feel like you're on acid in order to have that, that insight. But what that insight does is it does, it does radically interrupt this identification with thought and with, and with all of the, the things that follow from being identified with thought, which are all the mediocre emotions that play us so, so much of the time. Yeah, I mean, one way to to get this is, you know, as Sam was saying before, when he was guiding us in meditation, he first had us just listen to the sounds in the room. You could do this at home later if you want. Um, you listen to the sounds. You can do it now. And just try to find who or what is hearing them. You look, you won't find anything. There isn't some little nugget of you there that you can find. And that is something you can explore ad infinitum Hmm. and does, I think, slowly, at least in my experience, slowly lead to a a compounded realization that the you that you think is so solid and that you're spending so much time trying to defend or advance the interests of actually doesn't have as much if any substance as you've long assumed. Hmm. Did that, did that in appropriately amplify your point? Yeah. Yeah. And although it, it also revealed these two different orientations that I tried to make it to useful is, is your point. Yeah, no, but, but this issue of, of being of fixated on retreat as being the, the necessary circumstance of, of meditation. Right. There, there are two different paths to that insight you just described. So to take, take hearing as the, the basis of this, it's possible to, to pay such close attention to the experience of hearing. So each, you know, every little impingement on your eardrum, just to catch it the moment it occurs and to, and to notice it's passing away the moment it disappears. You pay such laser-like attention to that experience that for brief moments, 
the, the sense that there's a hearer and a thing heard, that collapses and there's just pure hearing. So there is no sense of self in the, in the midst of, of, that, of that noticing. But that seems to require this massive buildup of energy that people get, for the most part, only on retreat, where they, they, you, you get work up to that by just being continuous in your mindfulness. It's also possible to, to sort of take it from the other side, which, which you were sort of suggesting, which is that if you look for the one who's hearing, you can notice, without especially fixating so closely on what is being heard, you can notice that there is actually no no subject there. There is just this sort of wide open space where sounds are appearing. And it's a, that's the, that's the kind of experience that equalizes retreat and life because Mm -hmm. there's no, it's clear that the the moment proceeding was not a moment of you having some heroic level of concentration that, that you don't normally have or can't normally aspire to. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're describing, that's why you said you can do it on the subway. Um, You, you can, look around in the subway and just ask yourself the question, who's seeing all of this? Where's, where's, where's the me? And you won't find it. And there's something very healthy about the looking and not finding that in my, in, in my experience, can you start to chip away at the sense of inner solidity, hmm. uh, which is really the source of most, if not all of our suffering, this, that we're constantly trying to advance or defend the interests of this me and this is not to say that you then you have this realization or you try to systematize this realization in your life and then you don't have to put your pants on in the morning. It's, that's not the goal here. The goal is that you start to see, in my view, that you start to see yourself for what it is, which is a mystery. More 10% happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. it's still a struggle to get that good night's sleep then maybe it's time to try the purple mattress it's made out of a new material that keeps it firm and soft so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable 
Try it now with a 100-night risk-free trial along with free shipping and returns. And if you order one, you'll get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. Just text HAPPIER to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text HAPPIER to 474747. Message and data rates may apply. I think we, we want a good long while for Q&A, so it might be the moment to transition to that. Mr. Brave, young gentleman. How are you? I'm Nico. Thanks for coming and chatting about meditation. I guess my question is, when you've gone on these long retreats, and I guess particularly you, Sam, who's been away for 10 years going on these retreats on and off, at what point did you decide, you know, this time to come back, given that, you know, meditation and mindfulness is such a critical part to mental health? And if you were in those moments of mindfulness being super, you know, happy mentally, when, when do you say, hey, you know, it's actually time to end this and, and come back? Well, I, I was writing, and originally I thought I was going to be writing fiction. And if you're writing fiction, nobody cares that you dropped out of school and didn't make much of your academic career. But the moment you transition to nonfiction, all of a sudden it, it becomes highly relevant you know, how you know anything. So uh, I, de- I decided I just had to, to I, I couldn't keep just sitting retreats and being entirely self-taught to write what I wanted to write. And uh, it was it was very useful to, to go back to school to do it because I was not, I, I had at that point all of the liabilities of being self-taught in every area that, that was re- relevant to me at that point, apart from meditation. And, you know, now I just have some of the liabilities of being self-taught. First of all, thank you guys very much for doing what you're doing. I think like what you're doing in the public sphere and your individual ways is immensely helpful and for people like me and probably lots of people here. My question having to do with meditation is how often do you plateau in your practice and how do you kind of deal with that, if at all? Want to take that? Sure. Um, with the caveat that I'm not a meditation teacher, I'm just a guy who writes about meditation sometimes, um, and that Sam knows a lot more about this than I do. With that caveat, I think plateauing or the perception of plateauing is quite common and probably not that useful to get too hung up on. Um, our mutual friend and my meditation teacher, I was introduced to by Sam, is a guy named Joseph Goldstein, who's been on Sam's podcast at least twice. Mm. Uh, which I recommend to everybody because those are great interviews. Um, Joseph Goldstein often talks about this habit we have of playing what he calls the practice assessment tapes, where we're just obsessing about the state of our practice right now and have we plateaued or has our concentration level actually maybe diminished? This is this whole thing a waste of time? Am I a helpless case? Blah, blah, blah. This is just, to put it in Buddhist terms, the a classical hindrance called doubt. Not doubt in the positive sense. Doubt in my line of work as a journalist is quite positive, but this is doubt in the pejorative, which is this quagmire, this quicksand of useless self-questioning. And so I would just put that flag out there for you to, to be aware that a certain amount of practice assessment is healthy and it might be worth talking to a teacher, but... In my experience, this can turn into ruminative spirals that are entirely 
unconstructive. And to know that the way a practice goes over time is, you know, some, sometimes based on whatever factors, exogenous factors uh, in your life, uh, your ability to concentrate isn't that good, or maybe actually you feel like you're not able to apply the lessons of meditation off the cushion in the rest of your life. There are many factors that can go into that, but in my experience over time, it's a sort of wavy line, but it does kind of go in the right direction. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Harris and Harris, for sharing this with us. Dan, I wake up to you on my, uh, you're my weekend home. <laughs> um, I've read all of Proust for those who might have read it, and I think I'm one of those people that got it. And I studied with Lee Strasberg, which really worked on our central memory, et cetera. And I read your book, your first book, Dan, which really opened a door to me of which I thought I could walk through. And I'm going to be very honest. I can fall into mindfulness within seconds and driving anything, my feet, I mean, everything. And it brings me to a place of my childhood. I realize that's how I used to be all the time. And it brings a lot of joy and I'm there and everything else is quiet. My question is, why is the choice not to go there so difficult? Because it's always there at my fingertips to be able to be in that place so easily. And why do we let ourselves be so diverted when we know that there's something that really does work? Thank you. Well, it is, it is strange to, I mean, this is, this is not just with something like meditation. I mean, even if, if it's regardless of how accessible or inaccessible the, the, the pleasantness of, of meditation may be, we often paradoxically, I think, experience using our attention in ways that we regret, right? We, we do things we know we will regret, and we know they're not even that fulfilling while we're doing them, and yet we still do them. So this is a, is a, you know, this is a philosophical problem. This is a psychological problem. It's a bit of a paradox, and conversely, we don't do the thing we know will be satisfying and that we'll, we will not regret doing. And wisdom is in large measure just aligning your uses of attention in ways that you won't regret. Uh, so meditation is certainly one of the better tools to just notice the consequences of various uses of attention and you know, ways of acting in the world and to sort of keep a clear enough sense of, of, of those consequences so that you can get your priorities straight and paying, paying close attention to the character of your experience in this way as you know, mindfulness is, at the end of the day, one of the things you won't regret doing. I would just say to give yourself a break because... I was talking about evolution before, and it's worth bringing that up again. We are not wired for this calm, non-judgmental awareness that is actually our birthright. You know, we are we we have this in in a capacity uh, of of mindfulness, but evolution really bequeathed us a mind that is really good at hypervigilance, and so to to be cultivating this skill is to hack evolution in some ways. And um, that that is available to you and to all of us is great, but that you often, for reasons that you don't fully understand, find yourself doing mindless things 
um, I don't think is something that you need to berate yourself for. I think it's just the way we're wired. And um, berating yourself for it is just another story. I, I didn't actually expect an answer that was going to make such a huge difference, but it did. Thank you. Thanks for having such low expectations. <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, first, I want to thank you for getting me to meditate. Sam, you sparked my interest many years ago. And uh, Dan, uh, your app finally got me to establish a practice and eventually go on a retreat. I know you guys um, are big fans of IMS and Spirit Rock as your recommendations, but for someone like myself, I found those prohibitively expensive, so I turned to uh, the Goenka Vipassana, those 10-day retreats, and yep. because they're free and you can donate, uh, which I do to your podcast. It's just like that in that regard. Um, so I was wondering if you had any opinions on the Goenka retreat as it contrasts to the other retreats. I know there's walking meditation and you only do 45 minutes max at IMS. I looked at the schedules a little bit. I was wondering just if you had any opinions on their methodology and perhaps any alternative recommendations that something might be more affordable. Well, what I would say about IMS and Spirit Rock, the two retreat centers that you referenced, one is called the Insight Meditation Society. It's based in central Massachusetts. It's where Joseph Goldstein lives. Spirit Rock is uh, up north of Marin, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're kind of sister organizations um, that I believe they have scholarships. So, they do, yeah. So that, I think, is worth investigating because I think they're re- keenly aware of the expense, and so they'll actually charge people with means more. Uh, and as a way to subsidize others to, to go, which I think is really kind of beautiful. So I would look into that. But, every, you know, everything I've heard about Goenka retreats is that they're great. So um, I think you're in good hands. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for being here. I have a question for both of you. Given that you're both seasoned meditators, uh, I'm curious if your thoughts have shifted uh, regarding the value of emotions, specifically negative ones? Well, they might have shifted, but I think they're shifting back. Okay. I, I, I briefly imagined that expressing anger may actually be a good thing in certain contexts. What are you thinking of specifically? Yes. <laughs> but no, I, I think there's... I think negative emotion is certainly appropriate and useful in certain contexts, I think it's, it's also useful to get over very, very quickly. I mean, I think, so I think, I mean, anger can be energizing, you know, outrage, moral outrage can be energizing. Fear can be energizing, but fear is totally appropriate. You know, if you're in a a situation of potential physical violence, say, or, you know, know, if a lion gets out of the cage at the zoo it's totally appropriate to have the full adrenalized experience of, of now you're in the presence of some kind of emergency. But how long do you want to suffer the results of that hormonal kind of hijacking of your awareness? And what we tend to do is we keep these, these emotions alive in our thoughts for much longer than they're useful. And it's just one of these truths you can notice about the nature of, of the mind, and, and you really can only notice it by learning to meditate. If you don't get lost in thought about 
the, the reason you have to be angry or fearful or anxious or whatever it is, you actually can't maintain that emotion for more than a few seconds at a time. It's impossible to stay angry no matter what it is. I mean, no matter how grave the injustice that merits anger, it's simply impossible to stay angry for an hour, much less a day. So the, becoming aware of the mechanics gives you a choice. In the end, you can just, you, you can decide, well, how long do I want to be energized in this way by this stream of, of thought? And, you know, I, I think most of us, given that ability, will want to get off the ride far earlier than we do. But it's, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that negative emotion is, is never appropriate or never useful. I think it's, it's, I mean, classically negative emotions like anger or fear I think occasionally that we need we need that energy. It's just it's just you know what you do with it is is something you you want to be able to wisely choose. Yeah, I, I the more I practice in my for myself, I the more increased the, the the more convinced I become of the disutility of things like anger. I agree with Sam that there is a galvanizing quality to it in the face of pretty much everything we talk about on the news. Um, <laughs> But I don't find that that is the most constructive emotion out of which to act. Sam talks about this. He, I don't know, you probably don't even remember saying this, but I quote you on this all the time, that, that, that we, we, we experience anger and then we just re-up it through compulsive neurotic thinking. But if you can cut down on that, uh, on what Sam calls the half-life of anger... The amount of damage you can do in an hour of anger versus two minutes, I mean, that reduction is just incalculable. And um, I've just found that for me, cutting down on that has been a huge game changer. It's not to say that I never experienced anger. I spent, I spent quite a bit of time in anger today. Um, <laughs> but, and, so, and I don't think it's the type of thing we should engage in a much of self-laceration over because we're experiencing it. But I do, I do think it, it, in my own experience, having now investigated it at length, I don't see a, much use for it beyond what Sam described it, uh, in terms of like taking action in extreme situations. Thank you. Hey, guys. <clears throat> Thanks for being here. I'm a big fan of both of you. Um, this question is taking things in a little bit of a different direction, but it's not a perfect analogy, but if you were to look at the human race is somewhat of a hive mind, so we're collective consciousness. It seems like a lot of the ailments that plague humanity are the same types of ailments that a restless mind experiences. We fluctuate from war to peace to polluting the environment to trying to clean up the environment and then polluting it again to it's just chaos, and we don't quite know where we're going as a species. I'm just wondering if you guys think that's a helpful metaphor to, to view where we're at? And do you think there's some kind of collective meditative state that we could, re, we could reach or some kind of um, way that we could structure society or some of our institutions that take, some, that take mindfulness and take med- meditation and, those, and what that can bring you, the level of awareness that can bring you into account, if that makes any sense? Mm-hmm. It doesn't take long uh, spending time in the meditation world before you hear claims about how meditation will fix everything. It will surprise you to hear that I don't believe that. Um, 
I think, however, that if we see a broad societal embrace of the practice, there will be salutary changes. Um, if we had the same proportion of the population practicing mindfulness that currently engages in physical exercise, I, I think we'd probably see a real impact on things like uh, road rage, uh, bullying, the type of comments you see on social media, the quality of our politics. I don't think it would make everything, you know, barfing unicorns, but I do think it would start to change things, maybe 10% at a time. Um, <laughs> see what I did there, Harris? Um, so so I, do, I do actually think, I'm not a utopian by nature, but I do think that a broad societal embrace of mindfulness could make a difference. How much, I don't know. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting to realize that we have virtually no norm around mental training. Like mental training is still a, a totally esoteric concern. And yet physical training is, is just an absolute norm where it's just impossible to doubt the utility of it, whether you exercise a lot or not. There's nobody who's living in doubt as to whether or not there's something to be done to be physically better off, you know, most of the time. And it seems it should it seems obvious. I mean, even just thinking of it in physical terms, the, you know, the the brain is an organ which changes depending on how you use it, and we're training ourselves all day long based on how we use our attention to fixate on various things, whether it's social media or I mean, so much of it now is is driven by the phone we've got in our pockets, and. You can get better at doing anything you care about. You can get better at you know, having conversations with people. You can get better at, in your relationships. You, your marriage can get better. The thing you're doing by default is rarely the best possible version of that thing. And when you and this becomes this is so obvious in, in athletics because you're learning to play a new sport that you don't know how to play, and you're not in that in shape for that sport, say. And so everything you do is wrong, right? But most of what we are doing with our lives, you kind of sort of go through school and you get to a point where they, they say, okay, there's no more school for you in this, in the, on this topic, so you're done. Now get a job. And there's no notion of mental training beyond that. You're just basically who you are trying to figure out how to live a meaningful life after that. And the traditions out of which practices like meditation come have a very different picture of just of what life what's possible in terms of being comfortable here in your own skin as a as a human being navigating social space with other human beings and i think if if we just acknowledged that emotional and moral development continues throughout life and even in predictable ways if you if you apply your attention in in certain ways or you think, or you just re forget about meditation, just reframing situations conceptually can do enormous work in, in terms of how you feel. It's like, like road rage is the perfect example. That, that's a, it's a, it's a cliche that we've all become, right? We've, we've all experienced this thing where just magically you're in a car and somebody does something in front of you uh, or is just driving too slow and 
a part of your personality emerges that simply does not emerge in other circumstances. When you're not surrounded by glass and metal, you never, I mean, this never comes out of you in an elevator with other people, right? Unless you're a total sociopath. But you're in the safety and, and relative privacy of your car, all of a sudden you're, you know, Uday Hussein. And I mean, mindfulness is useful there, but just a reframing. Like the person who just cuts you off maybe on 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 route to some medical emergency right so that's like, like just just thinking thinking about what you don't know about that other person's circumstance the person who's driving slow may be you know 90 years old in front of you right and how fast do you want that person to drive <laughs> so just just learning to think new thoughts in those situations is also incredibly useful i just want to add to that because this is in many ways the punchline this is why you, know, you were asking me at the beginning why, why have I allowed meditation to kind of take over my personal and professional life. To me, the animating insight of this whole jag I'm on is that the mind is trainable. That all the things we want the most, positive social interactions, positive relationships, kindness, compassion, patience, calm, focus, self-awareness, all the things, if we really think about that, we want and need the most. These are not factory settings that can't be tinkered with. These are skills that can be trained. That is huge. It's radical. It's empowering. And that is why we do this, whatever door you enter through. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's a word we haven't used as much as we probably should have tonight, which is skill. The skill contains that message that, you know, well-being is a kind of skill yeah. in the end. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's a good lead into what I was going to ask. Um, I recently did a 10-day retreat, and it was with the Goinka, but I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I recommend it. But um, I was wondering what my next thing was going to be, and I thought about maybe a 10-day retreat every year, or if there. I don't know if I have the luxury of doing a, you know, a month retreat or, but, but I also, I had to actually write this down. I don't know if I can pronounce it right, but a, a huwaska, that the, it's a type of herb, a, an herb. Yeah. They're having these particular retreats abroad where you can go and there's, I mean, I've done hallucinogens when I was um, a younger person before I got mm. into mindfulness. So I don't know if this, if you know anything about ayahuasca or if you have any recommendations. Sam's got ayahuasca on an IV drip. But, <laughs> but, but my ultimate question is, because um, this was mental development, and I think it was the best mental development I ever had. And I think I hadn't really meditated before I'd done my 10-day retreat. So I want to keep developing, and I just kind of wanted to get some recommendations. Hmm. Good on you. That's great. Yeah, do you deal with the psychedelic option in your talking about this? And well, I mean, might, um, so this. I've long been interested in um, exploring things like ayahuasca, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, LSD, things like that. But uh, my shrink, aided and abetted by my wife, have argued convincingly that for somebody who has panic disorder, as my shrink said, his exact words with your brain chemistry is not a good idea. So <laughs> I have not played that game. I mean, I've, t- I've ingested plenty of drugs in my day, which is what gave me the panic disorder. S- also part of the 
argument. Um, so I have not done that, but I know a lot of really serious people, including the guy to my left, who who uh, take who's stoned right now. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, just just give me those leftover drugs. Yes, so. exactly. You take those off your hands. I, you know, there 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 have been really interesting studies going on right now at Johns Hopkins of using psilocybin on long term meditators, and um, and I have friends who are experienced meditation teachers who lead retreats that mix ayahuasca with meditation, and so I'm quite convinced that there's a lot of there there, but I'm not as a public figure going to strongly recommend it, nor have I done it personally because uh, it might entail either more panic attacks or divorce or both. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Briefly, I I have not done ayahuasca, but I I know many people who have. It's it's very in vogue now, and and people are claiming to get a lot of benefit from it, and I I certainly don't doubt that. I, I think that the most significant benefit I got from doing psychedelics back in the day, I mean, it's, been, it's been many years since I've done any, anything like that, more than a decade since I've done any psychedelic. But what, what I got from them, which I couldn't have gotten, I, I don't think I could have gotten otherwise, I, I was certainly not tending to get it otherwise, is the conviction that it was possible to have a, a radically different experience than I was tending to have. And it sounds like you already have that conviction because you're already going to sit 10-day retreats. That's not to say psychedelics couldn't be useful for you. And there, and there are certainly people who would argue that there, there are further benefits than just being convincingly advertised to that there are other states of consciousness that you'd rather inhabit than the one you're, you're tending to. But the reality is, is that whatever psychedelic you take, no matter how good the trip, it will wear off, right? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's impermanent by its very nature. It doesn't give you... It's not the, quite the same thing as building a skill that you always have recourse to. And there's the other part, which is that it is the experience you have on any of these drugs is somewhat haphazard, no matter how assiduously you control your, your set and setting. I mean, you, you, can, you can have the exact same set and the exact same setting and have two very different experiences, one being absolutely sublime and one being harrowingly awful and it's in the end i mean the reason why i stopped taking psychedelics more or less totally is for me there was just it just it's it felt like a kind of psychological russian roulette i mean it was just like i had no i I had no way of expecting what i was going to get because again i just i couldn't control the variables that that seemed to matter uh, Dan, earlier you had mentioned like the bad marketing or, or the flowery message that um, meditation had in the past. And like in my perspective, though, there seems to be something more pure and honest about, you know, uh, I guess like the peace, love, the, the hippie approach to it, you know, the, the wearing the robes, the long hair like Sam did. It, you know, it, not to be cynical, but it just it seems to be somewhat dishonest or like bullshit when you hear these like CEOs making these ridiculous salaries and they'll talk about like, oh, yes, how they meditate. They have guided meditations and stuff like that. So. I mean, is, is, is there sort of like a legitimate practitioner versus an illegitimate practitioner? And like, you know, how, how can we nudge, you know, the people in power towards more, you know, giving up their possessions type direction meditation? So, Look, you know, it's been a big challenge for the traditional Buddhist community. I, I, would, I, would, I consider myself a Buddhist. So it's a big challenge for the 
traditional Buddhist community to have their beloved practice, you know, spread out to the masses. It, you know, I, I always joke that we Buddhists have spent so many years assiduously sending, you know, good wishes out to the world, you know, may you be happy, may you be safe. But it turns out there was an asterisk all along, which is if you do it like me. And look, we can take issue with the way some high profile meditators are choosing to leave their, lead their lives. But I'm still of the view that at the end of the day, more mindfulness is better than less mindfulness. So I'm not going to trash talk Unless Uday and Kuse take up the practice, I'm not going to get into the business of trash talking or nitpicking every public meditator unless I think they're, you know, doing demonstrable harm in the world. Um, yes, do I see some of the hypocrisy uh, of the, uh, you know, um, of the folks that you're referencing? Sure, but uh, I still think, I still think it's it's a it's a better thing for the world that we're seeing meditation seep into areas that are way, 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 way outside the Buddhist ghetto. Hmm. Uh, yeah, my question is about, uh, well, have either of you ever incorporated sensory deprivation tanks into your practice? And uh, if not, what are your thoughts on that as far as depriving your senses since most of the practices to be aware of sounds and sights? Well, it's been a very long time since I've done it. I, my friend Joe Rogan is a is a big believer. Actually, you didn't you do yeah, he use bullied his? me into okay, doing so it. He, you have a more recent he, experience. We were there. texting, and I was in LA. I was going to go on his podcast, and he mm-hmm. said, "Come." He said, "Why don't you come a couple hours early and get my sensory deprivation tank?" And I said, "I don't want to do that." And he called me a chicken, and so <laughs> yeah. I did it. Um, yeah. So, how was it? My, my my question would have been, "How often do you change the water?" <laughs> Especially if you're using Joe's water. Um, it's salt water, so it's... Um, that's supposed to right, put me at supposed ease? supposed to be cleaner? I don't know. It's like the Dead Sea. Um, I, I did find it pretty powerful, yeah. But I don't know. I, I need how, to do how long? How long were you in? I was in there. For, I think he only made me do it for an hour, so... Well, that's, that's still something. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not nothing. Um, I, did, I did find that it, you know... But I, I, I need to do more before I could develop a, a real opinion about it. But I, I can, I can, I could get a glimpse of the value. We just got the the signal. We're down to our last question. So apologies to those of you in line. This is the way karma works, apparently. <laughs> I got good karma today. Um, various forms of meditation exist, and uh, just curious: are they all created equal, or do you have specific advice on? Well, well, they're not. There are different forms which have different purposes. So, there, to kind of use the, the Buddhist framework here, there are there are concentration practices where the goal is to focus one pointedly on on some object. It could be the breath. It could be a a, a candle flame or a, a you know a, an inner visualization. But and the goal there is really to focus so one pointedly that. You, you notice nothing else, so that your th- thoughts really are the antithesis of that practice. If you're thinking, you're not focusing, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're failing in that moment. And that kind of concentration becomes a tool that can be used for a practice like mindfulness, but that isn't, it's not the same as a practice like mindfulness. Mindfulness is much more about 
you need some concentration, but it's much more about simply noticing what is arising without having any expectation that anything should or shouldn't arise. And that begins to change the character of your experience and you begin to have various insights. But a concentration practice is, is a much more narrowly focused thing, which is, is a useful skill, but it's just, it, 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 it is the thing that becomes, in the end of the day, it can seem like an artifice. It's, it's, it's more like a drug experience because when concentration really works, it, is, it becomes synonymous with very pleasant states of mind and you can kind of have this sort of heroin addict-like attachment to the pleasantness of meditation, but then it's, it's transitory. When you're no longer concentrated, you're no longer getting that high. And so, the, so the, the other type of practice is called insight practice, of which mindfulness is the technique. And there it's not about prolonging any specific state. It's about, about actually seeing what is common to all states of consciousness and therefore no longer clinging to... I mean, one of the things that's common is they're, they're impermanent and you're no longer clinging to the highs or, or pushing away the lows. So. I'm going to assume, and this may be wrong, but I'm going to assume that undergirding your question is a kind of sense of, you know, what kind of meditation should I be doing? Um, and I guess what I would say to you is, at the beginning, there can be a real sense of, like, wanting to try everything, which I think is cool. I think you should try a bunch of things and see what speaks to you, what tradition, what flavor of meditation speaks to you the most. But then I would stick with one thing because if you're jumping around too much for too long, you really can't get a clear, clean signal of like what, what's working. And I would do it for a little while, like a couple of years and see, you know, what the benefits are, get grounded in one tradition before you go flitting around too much. Sorry to bring this to a close, but uh, thank you all for coming. It's really an honor thank to you. talk to you. That was a lot of fun. Big thanks to Sam for doing that. And uh, big thanks to the folks at the Skirball Cultural Center in Los Angeles for hosting us at their truly beautiful facility. Okay, that, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, and I know we say this and podcasters say this all the time, but there's a reason we say it. If you like this, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us, tell a friend about us, uh, because all of those things, the ratings, the subscription numbers, the social media love, that makes a huge difference for us and helps us continue to do what we want to do here. Also, if you want to suggest topics that you think we should cover or guests that you would like me to bring on, uh, hit me up on Twitter. I actually look at this, at Dan B. Harris. Uh, importantly, I, I really want to thank the people who helped produce that this podcast. That includes Samuel Johns and Ryan Kessler and the rest of the folks here at ABC News who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts here at ABC News. You can check them out on abcnewspodcasts.com. Thank you again for listening. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.